0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do come to you and ask you for continuing grace to meet us now. And to meet us in a way that would enable us to adore You. To behold You. To see something new, perhaps. To think about something to a new level, perhaps. And to adore You for it. I want to pray that You would deliver us from cringing Particularly as we think about the subject that we're going to look at today, that we would no longer fear it or shrink back at it, but would see in it something marvelous and good. And we would bow down before you and say, Thank you. Lord, we come from all different places this morning with all different issues mental and physical, spiritual troubles physical challenges and would you meet us here and draw us all together to a place of calm rest before you and your truth and would you teach us? Would you sustain us in this time and bring out biblical truth from different passages that we'll look at and give us the mind of Christ that we would understand them? You are the High and Holy One. You reign over all of the earth. And as we consider some of Your deep ways today, please give grace to us to humbly accept and to worship. Move here in this room, I pray, Lord. Make Your truth clear. Give us insight into it and give clarity to my words. I want to feel that there is great opportunity to stumble and to wander. And so I pray give clarity and enough focus to my words to be clear. That you would build your church. That you would honor your son. That's our hope this morning and I pray you would do it. In Christ's name and for Christ's glory. Amen. If we turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find another chapter, another chapter in the devastating consequence that is Saul. Saul's decline, we've been, we've been following it now ever since he was first crowned king. And it continues on, and we see here again more blatant disobedience of the command of the Lord. Saul's attitude and then Samuel's response in this chapter are remarkable. But this morning, we're not going to be focusing on those issues, though they are the main subject matter for the chapter. And I want to be clear about that up front. That's, the main subject matter is, is Saul, is disobedience towards the Lord, Samuel's response to that, that. That's the main issue. But this morning, I'm going to be doing something a little different, which I do not often do. And if this is your first time or perhaps your second time here, you should know this is unusual for me and for us this morning. I'm going to be using a passage Take a couple verses and draw out a topic and address a topic. Our usual habit is to preach through passages. Passages of, of usually some length. I would customarily preach perhaps the whole chapter of 1, 1 Samuel 15, but this morning I'm going to be pulling out a few verses to talk about a subject that comes up. And I hope then to take it out of this passage and explain it in light of some other passages in the scripture. And I'm doing so because this particular subject. This this sub theme that I'm going to be touching on is one that sometimes raises questions in our mind when we encounter it here or in other places in the Bible. And it kind of sets us off and causes us to question, and maybe question with a certain bit of unbelief or or discomfort or fear. (coughs) I'm referring to the God ordered destruction of peoples in the Old Testament. Obviously, I'm having a hard time talking this morning. But this is a subject that we're going to see in the passage here. And sometimes when we encounter it, it causes us to pause or perhaps causes friends of ours to pause and say, what's going on with that? How can we look at that and, and understand it? When we see something like what we're going to see today, where God commands and then leads his people in an effort to wipe out an entire city or a people group or a cultural entity, we see something like that. We'll see it today with the Amalekites. God initiates it, and the Lord is very upset when Saul shows the least bit of leniency in carrying out the order, and then the Lord's prophet Samuel completes what the Lord had commanded, so he, he's really sure to get it all done. And that raises the question, what? How can that be just? How can that be fair? And How can that be done by the God that, that I thought was, was good? This is the God who describes himself as the God of love. How can that be? And sometimes we fall into mistakes of, of kind of trying to separate the two Testaments. We think the God of the Old Testament, evidenced by things like this, is, is kind of maybe angry. And the God of the New Testament is the God of love, and the God who is good and kind. That's false. We have one God, God of the Bible. So we need to understand things like we see today. And understand them as actually being just and actually being good. And my, my hope is that as we look at something like this, that what will come out of it is, is perhaps answers for your own evaluation of this, but perhaps answers for friends as you talk to them. And there will be a change in your heart from something that we kind of try to you know, kind of avoid sometimes. Skip over and read because it's awkward. And a change from that kind of an approach to a change of actually praising Him for it. Of being thankful and of giving glory to this God. To this God in His judgments. In His exercising of justice. And His exercising of good in the world. So, I need to be clear about something up front, though. If you read this and you ask questions, how can that be, then perhaps this morning God may give you some answers. But if you read this and you ask questions that really are accusations, meaning this cannot be, I've already decided what this tells me about God, that He is mean and Himself wicked, Experience shows that that when people come to God judging him and not actually asking genuine questions he often just lets them go. So I encourage you come to God reading something that's hard and asking how can that be? How can this be just and good and right? And he may well answer you this morning. Come with him come to him with the right attitude. And let His answers lead you into an appreciation of Him and a love for Him. Let me start by reading the portion of chapter 15 that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of points. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 9 first. And Samuel said to Saul, Camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, two hundred thousand men on foot and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, "Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt." So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Verse 18, reiterating the command. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And then verses 32 and 33. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The text begins with the Lord speaking to Saul through the prophet Samuel giving him an assignment, and he roots it in history, which is important to note. This doesn't come from nowhere. It has a context. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. The Amalekites evidently were a semi-nomadic people. They, they had different places where they lived, but all of, those, all of their lands were to the south and to the west between Canaan and Egypt. So when when Israel came out of Egypt, they bumped into the Amalekites. They fought against them. Different records in battle, but Israel won at least one of the battles. But the more telling facts about this encounter are in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, where Moses tells Israel that they are to remember what happened when they passed by Amalek. He says, Moses there, Amalek attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord has given you your inheritance in the land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. What's it describing? Well, Amalek, it says, attacked and cut off the tail. you got a, a massive number of people as they're walking, it's going to stretch out and the slower people the weaker people are going to straggle behind that's the tail so the groups going that way and it says that amalek jumped on the on the back end of it and killed those people took their provisions cut off the tail the weak and the weary and suspecting ones at the end And he did so because he did not fear God. And so God pronounced a verdict and said, there's going to come a time when he has given you your inheritance in the land when you are to enact that verdict on this people group. Do not forget. And now is that time. He's using Saul to carry it out. Verse 3, Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction that is set apart, devote, to be completely destroyed, an offering to God. Every man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey, as it says in verse 18, devote to destruction all the sinners. It's total. Wipe them all out. And Saul goes and he warns away the Kenites, who were not guilty, but in fact had shown kindness. And he says, Destruction's coming, so if you know it's good for you, leave. And they do, and they leave. And then Saul kills all the people in the city, except in disobedience he spared the king and the best animals. Now, the the in disobedience part, we'll come to that later when we talk about the main point of the chapter. But this morning we're focusing on the fact that he's got this order from God to devote them all to destruction. And Samuel, after chastising him, verses 32 and 33, writes this last final wrong. And it says, calls forward the king and kills him too. And note why. He summons the king and says, Your sword has made women childless. And so that's what's going to come to you. Your mother also will be childless among women. He's giving him what he deserves and hacks him to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal, that special place of communion with God. That's the subject as it arises in our chapter and as I said, the main point we must recognize goes, goes elsewhere. It's going to deal with Saul and his response to it. But this is the kind of thing that we see a lot in the Bible, and it causes questions. It raises challenges for us. So I'm, I'm kind of setting all that aside, and I'm going to focus on this subject this morning. Let me express the main point in this way, and then make a couple of comments about the point before, before going on. Here's my, my subject for this morning. The Lord... <clears throat> the Lord is worthy of worship for His just, saving judgment. The Lord is worthy of worship for His just, saving judgment. It's just and it's saving. I'm going to be working on that as I I elaborate here. And then talk about judgment, obviously here I'm talking about the, the judgment, the destruction of the people. But we'll look through a couple of Old Testament examples and we'll see sometimes it's, it's whole peoples, sometimes it's cities, sometimes it's particular rulers. And there's a principle that's established. If, if we step back a minute from that kind of judgment, there's a principle that's established here that sees, if I, if I take the word judgment and say the, the decisive ridding action. The decisive, ridding action of God is both just and saving. There's a principle there that we need to think about that runs through all of our lives, even down into a Christian's life as we look at sin and struggle and hardship in our life. His his decisive, ridding action, which can be hard and can hurt and can be puzzling and confusing, is just and it is saving. It's two things working together. So let's think about this a little bit. Here's here's my first point. And it's much longer than the second point if you're looking at your watch. The first point's much longer than the second point. Here's the first point. The Lord's destruction of peoples is both the exercise of His just judgment and of His salvation in the world. The Lord's destruction of peoples, here we're looking at in the Old Testament, is Him exercising His just judgment in the world as well as (coughs) His saving work in the world. We have to begin by realizing who it is that we're talking about when we talk about the Lord. He is the rightful ruler and judge over all that is. This is a, this is a critical starting point. When we think about God or God's people under God's orders, what we're seeing is a ruler here who is not engaging in some sort of a power struggle or a land grab or some sort of a of a bloodlust, violent frenzy. When people fight against people, it's a so I can gain more, so I can acquire more and expand my, my realm, gather in resources. That's not what's going on here from the very beginning. What we have is not someone who's contending for more, but someone who is exercising rule as a judge over that which he made and that which he owns. The world was created by the Lord, and he is the owner and master and ruler of it. He sets the standards, and he determines its meaning and its course for every single person and for every single culture in every single time. And he has a responsibility then, as he looks over this world, to maintain in some way, in some sense, he's allowed to decide the sum there, has responsibility to maintain, in some way, in some sense, a righteousness and a justice that matches his character, in his world. We all sense this when we cry out to God for justice. Why do we so much want justice? Because it's right. It comes to us from God, our maker, in whose image we are formed. Justice in the world is right. God has a responsibility and a privilege to carry out righteousness and justice in his world as king and ruler. And he does that in part by executing this sort of judgment in the world. You see it in the text. Why did he send them after Amalek? Because of what they did to Israel hundreds of years before. He pronounced a verdict on them and said, there's going to come a time when you will be able to carry out the verdict, and at that time, I'm going to call you to it. Don't forget. He very clearly ties what's going on to a verdict passed before. Why did he wait that long? There are a couple potential reasons, but ultimately we have to say, he has the right to do it whenever he wants to do it. Why is he waiting this long? He's already pronounced Saul, done. Why wait decades longer? It's his his privilege. He's God. And he very clearly in the text, 32 and 33, ties the, the killing of Agag to the fact that he himself is a killer. So your sword has made women childless. Here you go. Justice. That's in our passage what he's doing and the same thing is evident in countless other situations in the bible think about sodom and gomorrah for instance book of genesis sodom and gomorrah chapters 18 and 19 several times point out as god is interacting with abraham and discussing what he is about to do in sodom and gomorrah several times he mentions this is chapter 18 verse 20 because the outcry against sodom and gomorrah is great And their sin is very grave. I will look into it to see if they have made a complete end according to the outcry. What he's saying is there is an outcry rising from the earth to my ears. It comes up again. Chapter 19, verse 13. The angels told Lot, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and he has sent us to destroy it. You see what's going on there? The people of the earth crying out to God for justice. Under the hand of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, they want to be delivered. They want it to change. They want God to fix it. And so he acts in justice. Another example. A specific king this time, Judges chapter 1, verses 4 and 7. 4 to 7. After Israel came into the land and conquered much of it, there was still fighting to do. And the tribe of Judah, it says there, fought against a particular king named Adonai Bezek. Defeated him. Verse 6 He fled, they caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Seems kind of random, seems kind of brutal. They capture a guy and then cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Verse 7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me on his own lips. They took him to Jerusalem and so there he died. I got what I deserved from God. Seventy kings. I did this to them, and now God has done it to me. That's a ruler exercising justice in his world. or more broadly speaking, how about the nations of Canaan? Israel was supposed to wipe out, as you probably know, all of the nations of Canaan. All of them. Every single one of them. And here and there, though that sounds harsh, here and there we get glimpses as to what kind of people these were. Deuteronomy 12, God tells Israel what he's going to do. He's going to cut off, destroy all the nations of Canaan before Israel, and he warns them to stay away from these nations, to stay away from their idolatry and their wickedness and the ways that they worship. Verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12 You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Idolatry and atrocity. Can you imagine it? I once read a a historical fiction account of an attempt to put Western readers who Uh, Are inclined to to read something like the conquest of Canaan and say how brutal to put us into that shoe into the shoes of of a parent in a village of a people in Canaan, the year of a drought, and as the local priest down at the pagan temple says, the god of fertility must be appeased with the sacrifice of ten virgin daughters. Yours came up. how that would make one cry out to heaven for God to act right now and bring an end to it. And he did. He wiped out all of that wicked culture. We could continue to multiply examples. What's the Lord doing in the flood as he sees the wickedness of the world, or in Egypt as he judges Egypt through its plagues. But the point is that when we see the Lord moving to strike and destroy peoples and cultures and cities and civilizations, we must keep in mind that we're looking at a judge, a ruler, a king who looks at his realm and says, wickedness, and I am righteous and cannot tolerate this and must put an end to it, and they even want me to. We Want it. Not, not, not against us, but we want it for us all the time. Because wickedness is wicked. <laughs> God has a responsibility to bring an end to wickedness. And he has a great desire to rule a realm in righteousness and justice that is the foundation of his throne, and he seeks to bring that about in his creation. Perfect and twisted and marred by sin, he wants it to be made clean again. He is highly motivated to put an end to sin. Now, it's his privilege to determine how and when and in what ways he does that. But he will do it. And when he does it, it is a just judgment. And every time we are tempted to say how harsh and how mean and how wicked, we should keep in mind that on the other end of it, there is somebody else saying, finally. Now, as an aside, there's one other point we need to consider here. Because he is just and he is righteous in doing this. But one point comes up, I think, often in our minds when you think about, what about the kids? What about the children? We saw, even in our text, the Lord called for the destruction of every man, woman, child, and infant. And the child and infant, that's a hard one for us sometimes, isn't it? Well, let me say a word about that. While also saying that this could be a much larger discussion. If you want to talk more about it, I'd, I'd love to. But... A couple of things we can say briefly, I think will help us to understand this a little better. <coughs> because of the way God has made the world, we are interconnected to, to people, communities and families, and we have a corporate solidarity between peoples and between generations that we cannot overlook it's real and it's unavoidable think about for instance even justice in this world if a man commits a crime a man who is a husband and a, and a father commits a crime and is sent away to jail it will dramatically affect his whole family and that's not the law's fault it's his it will affect all the relationships it'll affect the economic standing Because of the way that we are interconnected, there is a human solidarity that is unavoidable. And so when God decides to act against a culture, and in these particular cases that we're looking at, when he decides the wickedness has risen to such a level, and his patience has gone on and gone on and gone on, but finally now it is time to judge. at, At this level, there will be consequences that will fall on children, on infants, it's unavoidable. It could just be, though, that when that judgment needs to be so very severe, that the most merciful thing he could do to the kids is to take them out of the world entirely. Particularly, when you consider what the Bible says about the eternal destiny of children and infants. Have you thought about it like that before? There is a difference, you realize between dying and being condemned to hell. There's a difference there. I'm convinced that the Bible teaches us that there are... We we often use this word far too broadly. Innocent people. We use it far too broadly. But the Bible does, I'm convinced, teach us that there are children... To some unspecified age, where, in the language of Deuteronomy one twenty nine, they do not know good from evil. That's the language of Deuteronomy one twenty nine, in explaining why it is God explains there why it is that the children and the infants, the little ones, will be allowed to enter into the promised land, though the fathers will perish in the wilderness. They are of such an age. What age? I don't know. But he says they're the little ones, the children, who today have no knowledge of good and evil. They will enter into the promised rest. So there's more that could be said about this, but what I'm saying is that I'm persuaded that the Bible teaches us that when such young children, of what age? I don't know. But there is an age up to which they have no knowledge of good and evil. And when such young ones die, they are taken to heaven with God. We should realize that when God exercises justice and wipes out a culture, including every man, woman, and child. I expect that we'll find many Amalekite children and infants in heaven. understand what I'm saying there? If you want to talk to me more about why that is, I'd be happy to do so. But the important thing to consider at this point right now is that it is not a violation of God's justice to wipe out a complete culture that He has decided is dead and done. It's not a violation of His justice because of the children. And in fact it may very well be a saving kindness to those children. You see the saving work in it. And here I'm turning it to the other half of this because like I said that we see in this the, the justice and the saving work of God. They are together. They are at the, They are one in the same. They are two sides of the same coin. As long as we live in a fallen world, those things under which we suffer and those those things that plague us, that are wicked and and harmful influences on our life, for us to be saved from them, very often God must judge or cut away or discipline or remove them. Different words apply in different situations. He must very often do a a hard work of separating that, of, of cutting it off. In these cases that we're looking at here, of eliminating cultures. If he wants to save King number 71 from having his thumbs and toes cut off, he eliminates the perpetrator. If he wants to save people from the influence of of Sodom and Gomorrah, he eliminates Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they are saved, not having to suffer. You're too quick to condemn the Lord for his judgments We must see that they are just, and we must also see that there is a good and a saving work in those same judgments, in those very same things. Look at all of his hard ways, and we should see in the hard ways, very often hidden in them, a great and saving good. Speaking to this point about a great and saving temporal good to eliminate the suffering in the world and in in the societies and cultures on the globe. But there is another, even more important saving work that he does in this judgment. Do you remember why it was that Amalek attacked Israel and cut off the tail? God told us in Deuteronomy, they did not fear the Lord. God's judging work has in view the greater offense behind all the physical violence, the greater offense, the greatest wickedness is that people do not fear. Do not stand before in awe of and in reverence towards the God who is the ruler of all. And in these dramatic, in these decisive actions of God, there is a moment, there is is an opportunity there for those who look on to say, woe is me. I have dealt so lightly. I have dealt with such offense towards this one. Woe is me. There is a chance then in these decisive acts for God to grow up in others the fear of Him for their great good. This must happen in the world. If it doesn't happen in the world, any dealing with a particular circumstance or a particular physical evil will just continue on and on and on because of the lack of something in here from which all the, the acting of evil grows. He must then, He must then address this lack of the fear of the Lord. And he must act in a decisive, judging way to cut away the denigration of the Lord and to lift up the fear of the Lord if he's going to save the world. Let's begin to think about that that pushes us towards the second point, which as I said is much shorter. All of this judgment, all of these judgments, like this one with Amalek, all of them in the Old Testament are pointing us towards something else. Here's the second point. The destruction of peoples in the Old Testament prefigures the just saving judgment of God over all the world. Not in it, but over all the world, or perhaps you might say for all the world. What I'm pointing out here is that like so much of the Old Testament story, what we have are real facts, real history with real people that are pointing us towards something else. The greatest, the, the heart of the Old Testament story, a people delivered out of bondage, led, made into a, a covenant with a God who then carries them through a wilderness into a land of promise. The heart of the Old Testament story is the heart of God's story of how He deals with and saves a people. Redeeming, making covenant, leading through the wandering wilderness and then into a land of promise. And when He leads the people in and they they are secured in the promise, in that day of them coming into the land of promise, that day also is the day of the judgment of all of the nations. What's that talking about? The day that we come into our final great rest at the end is also the day of the judgment of all of the nations. Everything that's happening in these little judgments in the Old Testament is prefiguring a great coming day of judgment over all of the earth. One day, God, through the reign of his great king, will exercise the perfect and complete eliminating of all wickedness and all evil on the earth. That day is coming, it is a day of justice is a day when righteousness finally is placed over the earth in fullness. It is absolute and total. All sinners are judged. All evil totally wiped clean. Just like happened with Amalek. Just like happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like happened with all of the nations in the land of rest. Total And absolute. This is God's judgment and it is coming and we should be warned of its coming. And we should respond to it like the Gibeonites did. Do you know who the Gibeonites were? Do you remember them? As Joshua and the Israelites invaded the land, the other nations in the land began to hear about this war and this, this wiping out that awaited them. And many rallied together, allied themselves with each other to fight against Israel, except for Gibeon that said, I have a better idea. Let's seek peace. Wise. Everybody else got wiped out. And the Gibeonites lived because they sought peace in the face of this coming judgment. Do you seek peace in the face of the coming judgment? How can peace be found? Well, here's the great irony of it all the judgment <clears throat> the judgment that is so just and righteous and hard and terrifying is also saving the judgment and the saving are working together do you realize what God did to bring the judgment that is just and the saving that is good together. He used his king, he used his great king to march on the world and bring about judgment that was just. in totally unexpected irony, by bearing the judgment himself. Who expected it? Nobody. But because of it, there's a way to seek peace in the face of the coming judgment. Now, if one decides to ally against him and seek to resist him, there is a coming judgment that will have no peace in it at all. That story is told for us again and again in places like what happened with Amalek. But there should be in each of us a desire to, if, if you have not yet, to seek peace from him, to seek in him a judgment poured out not on you, but on the king himself, and to say, would you please apply the, the wrath that is due to my sin to this king and give me peace, please? But if, as for most of us here, if you have already, in fact, trusted Him, this should cause, as you think about it, it should cause in you to rise up, to rise up in you a sense not of of needing to avoid these things, but to revel in them. To lift up and to heighten The burning desire of God to have justice. His tremendous commitment to wipe out all wickedness and to wipe out all evil and then to see that He has done that for you by pouring it on His King. Bless God for this. Don't run from it. Don't don't try to avoid the passages that talk about killing every single person, but read them and say, that's what the justice of God is like. Every single person with zero tolerance of wickedness. That would be me. Except that that degree of burning fury against sin that is total and absolute and remorseless Was poured out on the king for me. Bless God for that. (laughs) Don't run from them. Run to these passages and see in them a God who is frightening and beautiful. The judgment of God is good, it is just, it is necessary. It's the only way He brings about a world that is right and good, the kind of world that we actually want. It would be terrifying if He had not provided for peace. But He has, and his King. So bless God for His goodness to you. And talk about these passages with others. Don't avoid them. And use them as a means of pointing towards the way, the way that God has provided to be just and to save. To be this perfectly, absolutely just. And to be good and to save, to make a world that is right and to provide you access to it. Let me pray. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would help us to, to embrace the passages about judgment, and to not resist them or to resist you in them. I thank you for your commitment to justice. For your commitment to make a world that is right and clean and pure and holy and I thank you that you provided a way to find peace with you in that fervent righteousness for those of us here who are your people Lord would you give us encouragement and comfort and help us to think about these passages in new light and for those who are not Your people here, Lord, would You soften them perhaps in their, in their concern over this resolute judgment. Soften them and help them to understand it from Your perspective. Give them hearts that ask questions that are honest. Provide answers for them and call them to You. We look to You for help, Lord. We look to you and thank you for bringing about justice and righteousness and in grace and in mercy, placing us with you in it. Grow in us appreciation for you, I ask. Thank you, Lord. Amen.